0: I know it's a bit of a tangent to maybe the focus of the, of the obesity and the biocultural, but I hope to suggest at least some concepts that I've been working with that might be of use um, to this biocultural approach, but also maybe I can talk to some of you, maybe to other people's uh, studies as well, especially if you're looking at issues of, of the media um, or photography or uh, of the domain of the visual, which is what I am focusing on today. Um, so, so what I want to talk about today is uh, the title something like visual political economies, imaginaries, and praxis uh, in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro. And this is based on some work I've done um, over the last few years with some colleagues in, in Rio about young people's perceptions and practice of public action in um, in the public sphere, I guess, in, in Rio. And We didn't initially set out to study uh, the media, photography uh, and, and these kinds of domains, but as it happened, this was quite an important part of what young people were, were doing and, and also part of what I'm calling a kind of a, a, a set of broader struggles within which now the visual is included as well. So um, I want to think about the, the domain of the visual as part of broader kind of social uh, inequality and social struggles in a place like, um, like Rio. Um, and so how many of you have been to Rio actually? Just so I have a sense. Some of you have, okay. Um, so this was where I did my fieldwork um, and the, the favelas for those of you on the show have seen. These are the kind of images that we are talking about. Um, and so it, as a way of possibly making some links with, uh, let me just go to this slide because these are the kind of core concepts that I want to talk about today. I want to be talking about this idea of visual political economy and visual culture and the kind of overlap of this. But in particular, I'm going to focus more specifically on the realm of uh, photographs being produced about and by uh, favelas. So I'm going to be talking about, especially about how photographs being disseminated in the media uh, kind of circulate uh, in the the sphere in, in, in Brazil, in Rio. Uh, but also how there are uh, especially more recently over the last couple of decades what can be called kind of counter hegemonic productions of images emerging from favela communities as well which is the the people that i was working with when when i wasn't real (laughs) okay so i'm going to be talking a lot about the visual and about photography that's the focus of today obviously i could have talked more about uh news more generally or about the media, but I I want to try and focus more more specifically on photography. So, as John Berger put it, photographs are not reality, but they are a quote from appearances, and I quite like this way of approaching uh, photography, uh, because... It points to, if you like, there's something, obviously there's something very obvious in the media about photographs that they they seem to imply that they are conveying something which is really out there, which is really the real, which is the truth and so forth. But at the same time, um, with this approach of that photographs, there's always a choice behind um, you know, how you frame things, where, where you take photographs, what's considered photographable and so on, uh, it has this implication of intentions behind the photographs too. So this, this approach um, by various kind of scholars of photography, of thinking about photography as in a way uh, there is an element of truth but it's also obviously a partial truth is something that I want to uh, touch on today uh, because as you can see the series of representations about the favela, they are they do happen, but they're not the whole um, truth. In fact, we can never really approach the whole truth. But one thing that's interesting to think about photography and the creation of meaning um, through uh, images, and, uh, focusing on photography, is this kind of relationship that we have in a photograph, somewhere in the middle there, that's a relationship between the choices of the photographer, um, the, the subject of the photograph, and the interpretation of, of the viewer. Um, and so I'm going to be using the work of some um, well people who helped me to think about this this kind of sphere uh, away from the immediate act of taking a photograph and, and looking at photograph to the broader dimension of uh, the, produ- the broader social production and circulation of photography um, you have scholars like um, John Berger, Susan Sontag but also anthropologists like Christopher Pinney, uh, Deborah Poole, uh, Marcus Banks has written about this too, um, which uh, (coughs) tries to um, understand the practice of photography within broader uh, classificatory schemes and ways of ordering and making sense of of the (coughs) world. So uh, obviously photographs are are, are used across many different fields. some of you democracy be doing work on, on fingerprinting and so on, so you can think about uses of photography within uh, scientific disciplines as well. Maybe some of you who are doing study on obesity, uh, there is uh, an interface with uh, the technologies of photography within the studies of, of obesity in terms of, I can't remember name of that, that scan that, that's used within an obesity study, the biomass scans and so forth. MRI. Oh, it's MRI, okay. So, um, Photography, then, in, in those uh, instances, is, is used as uh, something to provide the missing evidence within a kind of a broader way of understanding and classifying uh, the world, a broader conceptual framework of the investigation. <coughs> um, but when it comes to the domain I'm going to talk about today, which is more about photojournalism, it becomes more complicated because it's not just a, a conceptual scheme that you're talking about, a kind of scientific scheme that the photograph points to an in evidence in, in, in the world, but you're also interfacing with people's experience, people's experience of day-to-day life um, and their, their, their kind of experiences of, of the world and of representations. So what I want to talk about today is this relationship between photographs, some idea of truth, uh, and living experience. But in particular, how this interfaces with broader struggles over, um, over the social and over the visual, within which these kinds of practices are, are embedded. <coughs> so, so what do we mean by visual? Well, the, the, the term is actually often used in the literature. It's talking about visual economy. Uh, I don't know if other people use this term before, but the person who... Uh, is normally associated with this term is uh, the anthropologist Deborah Poole, who did a study of photographic practice and representation in the Andes. And her idea was that within visual anthropology and so on, we talk about the idea of visual cultures, that a set of kind of practices and tendencies and uh, kind of habits or or patterns of making sense of of the visual, of uh, various visual, visual products, um, as being contained within this this kind of category, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But for um, for Paul, um, she suggests the concept of visual economies because visual coaches, she believes, doesn't really address the issues of the kind of power differentials, which are also part of of this domain of visual production and circulation. <coughs> so what what she took what is contained within this uh, visual uh, Economy, in, in her terminology, um, are if you like the the organisation and institutions that produce images, and the set of technologies available for this, um, but also how th- this production uh, and the technologies of images, um, how they they circulate um, and are consumed by different sectors of, of society. Um, <coughs> and the third the third element that she, she kind of includes within the study of political economy is what she says are the cultural and the discursive systems through which graphic images are appraised evaluated and assigned historical scientific and aesthetic worth Um, so i want i want to use this idea of of visual economy but i want to add the the political there because i think that should be uh, emphasized as well um because as we're going to see in the case that i'm going to point to it appears very much of a case of struggles over the representation of, of a particular community, of the favela communities uh, in, in Rio. <coughs> so um, what are the kinds of things that might be included within the study of a visual political economy? So on the one hand, we might have um, institutions, uh, institutions, say for example, in, in, because I'm talking about the institution and the organisation of the mass media. Um, we have, if you think about the technologies, we have the whole kind of network of, of industrial production of the, the technologies that allow these, the production of these images to, to arise. Uh, and the whole market through which then these, these images are, are circulated uh, and, and consumed. <coughs> um, but there's another idea that I want to introduce within this, I've included this graph, and i like to, this is a, one I would like to open more the, uh, the seminar as well, hopefully, I I want to leave enough time for us to discuss these points, but it's also this idea of the imaginary. And the imaginary I understand here as, if you like, the effect and the effect that images have um, as they are lived and created by subjects. So think about uh, the cumulative effects of a series of representations, or in this case of photographs, as they are uh, interpreted consumed experienced, and so forth by, uh, in this case, people living in in the favelas. So um, I know the imaginary is a term that has a whole series of meanings, but what I want to um, uh, do in in the rest of the paper is also link this idea of imaginary um, with the sense of how images also help to shape subjectivities and social relationships. Um, But at the same time, I want to use a term to celebrate this idea that people can reimagine they can produce other kinds of images um, and, and are, not, are not just passive consumers. <coughs> okay, so we'll go back now. That was a, a kind of a very, uh, I guess, long introduction to the key concepts that I want to talk about. Um, so favelas have been around since the beginning of the 19th century in, in Rio. They are the, uh, if you like, they grew up around some of the disused um, areas around the city. You can see Rio really is quite an unusual geography that you have. Uh, a city that grows up around this, this quite uh, interesting landscape of, of hills and, and forests and so forth. And We still have a lot of forests in uh, some of the areas here, which are national parks, but a lot of the, uh, the, the, more, the, the kind of less steep hills, if you like, have become populated by um, illegal settlements. Uh, over the course of a century and now they are becoming ever more integrated into the rest of the city but historically they were kind of apart really from uh, the mainstream infrastructure um, of, of the city and what's interesting then and this goes back to, pre, to before the production of images about these places but if you look at newspaper reports uh, from the beginning of the 1900s uh, already then the uh, inhabitants of these areas that were just emerging in the hillsides of of the city already uh, came to be labelled with a particular stigma and a particular sense that they weren't really part of the rest of the city. So there's a a very long tradition of over 100 years of representing this population in a certain way as being apart from the city. And accumulating with that uh, was very much a sense of these these communities as uh, being lacking, lacking a series of uh, attributes which the rest of the citizens of Rio had. Um, uh, they were considered uh, places without hygiene, without morality, uh, the place of crime, um, and so on and so forth. And there's obviously a long tradition of that, And uh, even if you just look at the media. Um, but... Uh, The the accumulation of that, if you like, is a kind of discourse that's been talked about in the literature as a discourse of marginality, that these areas of the city come to be labelled as places that are marginal to the city. Um, But there's some very interesting studies done from the 70s onwards that um, really critique this idea of marginality as applied to these communities and show that rather than being marginal to the workings and infrastructure of the city, that these communities are actually quite fundamental. To the, if you like, the economic and cultural life of the city itself. That many people from who live in these communities and live in these communities actually help to sustain the economy of the city, and also they provide um, a lot of the vibrancy of the cultural life of, of the city. So if you think about samba, if you think about um, a lot of kind of popular cultural forms associated with Brazil, they came out either directly from favela communities or as a kind of hybrid of favelas interacting with um, the rest of the city, with artists and musicians and, and so on. <coughs> so this is, you can see that they are dotted around um, all over the city. Um, the population of, of uh, living in favela now in the city of Brazil, which is about uh, sorry, in Rio, which is about 5-6 million people, is about a million people, so it's about 20% of the population live in in these communities. Sorry, can you tell us which ones? We can't read the. Legend? Oh, uh, Sorry, So the red areas are the favela communities around the city. Um, and also, you can see from this photograph here taken from the top of a favela how close they are to the more affluent middle class areas of, of the city. So you saw the geography of it before, this close proximity of the hills with the rest of the city. And this is. Um, in the of, of Botafogo, and you can see the kind of gated communities and so on just below that. Um, so, in some cases, they are quite very very close, just across the road from each other. These these places. <coughs> so, what I want to do um, now is, is just talk a little bit about the history of how this idea of the favela as marginal um, and leading from this discourse of marginality, which you find in, in the literature, you find in, um, in, in newspapers, but also in uh, the way that um, various kind of, uh, other sectors of society speak about this place, politicians, um, doctors, uh, academics, and so forth. Um, but what, one thing in particular for this narrative that I want to weave today, that significant is the rise of the drug trafficking gangs and the drug trade, uh, which really has a, a profound impact in these communities from the 1970s onwards. Um, so, there's a big influx of, of drugs into these communities, um, and that does lead to increasing levels of, of, of crime and of uh, control of aspects of these communities throughout the city. Um, but from this period on, this serves to consolidate this idea of these places as being really apart from the city. So what you see uh, increasing then from the 70s onwards is the representation of these places as not just lacking from the things that I, I said before, but also increasing as, as places of, of violence and places where uh, have a, a parallel, they call a parallel power to the state. Um, so they have their own forms of organising and their own forms of uh, dishing out justice, for example. <coughs> um, and you see this in increasingly also in visual representations of, of these communities. <coughs> so what I'm going to um, suggest, if you like, is alongside, if you, you can do an analysis of of the language, you know, discourse analysis, if you like, of the way that certain spaces are described and so forth, but you can do a similar uh, visual analysis um, of how certain communities and so forth are, are described, and I'll call this uh, if one would be the discourse of marginality, um, what I want to point to today is something that we could call it the, the imaginary of, of marginality. <clears throat> and something that's helped me to think through this idea of imaginary is uh, Benedict Anderson's work, um, which has been taken up by cinema theorists um, to try and understand how the media, uh, especially television and cinema, how they help to imagine communities as well. So as most of you uh, know, Anderson's uh, Imagined Communities showed how nationalism emerges as a historical phenomenon, in which large groups of people come to envisage themselves as part of a community with shared attributes and a common identity. <clears throat> and he was referring specifically to Creole communities in the Americas. But his idea is that um, these communities acquire a social consciousness as being part of a larger group in parallel to processes of self-organisation around institutions of the state. So for Anderson, for him, the key in this was what he called print capitalism, uh, that is the wider availability of printed books published in the vernacular through a newly established print industry. <coughs> uh, that included literary productions, pamphlets, newspapers, and so on. So you can see already the parallel here of what he's talking about to what this idea of a, of a visual political economy might uh, might be pointing to. <clears throat> so for Walsh, then, um, imagining he is used to refer not to a psychological faculty, but to a development in social epistemology, in which historical actors produce unintended consequences, such as collective sense of identity. <clears throat> so Anderson's most mostly known through this idea of print capitalism and the spread of this idea of social consciousness through. Uh, Texts primarily, but he also talked about other forms as well um, that helped to create this. So he talks about uh, atlases and maps and, and so on uh, to help him to create the sense of a, of a national imagining. Um, so, film and media theorists have taken on this, this idea and the challenge of tracing the role of different media in shaping uh, such social epistemologies. <clears throat> so um, there have been a, a significant tribu- contribution to uh, tracing a series of national imaginaries by looking at uh, national film and television productions and analysing tropes, tendencies and historical shifts as well as how minority groups such as immigrant communities, black and indigenous people are depicted. And there's a lot of examples of this uh, in, in Brazil and, and elsewhere too. <clears throat> uh, and, and my argument uh, in this sense is that uh, in the context of Brazil, a key agent of this imagining of the last four decades is the, the vast uh, media conglomerate, uh, Hegeo Global. this big media empire that is amongst the five largest uh, television networks in the world. Um, so Globe is a key player in terrestrial, cable and satellite TV, but also the empire also includes publishing newspapers, magazines, books, uh, radio stations and charitable institutions. Um, Global's vast reach means that it is responsible for 74% of advertising income in the country, and it is far, by far the most watched TV channel with over 50% audience share. Uh, and you might have even seen some of their famous soap operas being, maybe even in Britain, and other popular in, in China um, as well. Um, <coughs> So the argument here is that Hedro Global is the most powerful force in Brazil's visual political economy. Um, I'm not going to go into the, the rise of Hedro Global, but it's a very interesting uh, story about how he kind of really merges within the Brazilian dictatorship and comes to kind of dominate uh, the airwaves. Uh, but um, what I will say is that... Uh, Hedric Global Fees the Nation, a daily dose of entertainment and advertising which, though extremely popular, reflects the lifestyles and consumption habits of the country's white upper-middle class urban residents and often from the wealthier districts of Rio. That's quite an interesting thing, that it's a very Rio huge Janeiro-based uh, kind of outfit, if you like. <clears throat> and this, this might be a, maybe slightly tenuous, but a link to uh, the... Uh, the kind of obesity or the, the biological question in terms of relationship to the media is that there's a striking example of the power of the media that can be seen, uh, in particular of the Hedge global, in the declining birth rates of the country. So according to some demographers, um, the re- declining birth rates have been partly attributed to the telenovelas of networks like Global, which have spread throughout the country uh, faster than education programs. And these novellas show modern upper middle class urban families few children and desirable lifestyles, and so the argument goes, this has encouraged thousands of impoverished women, including those living in rural areas, to have fewer children. So this could be an an example, if you like, of of this idea of the imaginary uh, operating through the media and coming to effect, in a very concrete sense, uh, people's lives. (coughs) And one thing I picked up on um, the, the Global Network and other Brazilian broadcasters are very aware of the power of television in shaping public opinion and creating a sense of national identity. The corporation's slogan, uh, which is constantly flashing on the air, puts it Global, a gente se vê por aqui. Global Network, we see each other through here. And I, I found this really interesting in relation to, to Anderson, because I think this is the most succinct encapsulation of what Anderson was addressing in imagine Community, this idea that we see each other through the television. Um, and with almost five decades of airwave domination, global has a profound impact on Brazil's imaginary, reinforcing social attitudes and forming opinions. But, but the question that me and, and my colleagues who were doing this research came across in Brazil is, what happens to people who don't recognise themselves on, on the screen, on the, on the media uh, outlets? <coughs> And this is um, this is where we begin to this idea of, of imaginary struggles, is that many people that we interviewed in our research, especially young people, and those who were involved in a number of the, the projects that we engage with, they related feelings of what can be called misrecognition. From their perspectives, the favelas and consequently its inhabitants were often described in the media in prejudiced ways. The favela is commonly common described, as I mentioned already, in terms of lack. Um, lack of urban resources, sanitation, housing, of the law, of education and culture, of productive power and of morality. Um, so this is kind of problematic, and a, a Brazilian academic who grew up in a favela and founded one of the organisations that we, uh, we worked with, um, he says that despite feeling the discrimination faced by favela inhabitants in many aspects of their day-to-day life, the problem with the mm-hmm. perpetuation of such prejudiced perception is the relativizing of citizenship. So according to the author, citizenship itself becomes relative to the color of the skin, level of education, income, and all the space inhabited in a city. Um, I think, if I have time, I'll just show you, there's uh, another uh, kind of important organization in Rio that even mounted a campaign uh, which they had short clips which were put on TV and, and, and all over the internet, which tried to reinforce this idea of being proud to be living in a, in a favela com, in a community to, discrimi- uh, to kind of counter the widespread discrimination about uh, how hard it is, say for, for example, to, to find a, a job if, you have, if the address that you put is that you come from a favela community. I just, I think Portuguese, so maybe I'll just play um, a few seconds of this. Oh, there's probably no volume, stuff. Okay, I forget that thing. Um, anyway, it was it was just a nice little illustration of that. <clears throat> um, so, what I want to get to now is this point, which uh, you can see over. Oh, before I do that, maybe I should just show some the kinds of images that we find um, in the newspaper related to this idea of the imaginary of marginality and particularly associating with violence. So a lot of the um, uh, images that we find in newspapers now, uh, when they have favela in the topic, relate to the police operations uh, to combat the drug trafficking gangs in, in, in these communities. Uh, and often the, the 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 occupation of the favelas to combat the gangs are sometimes done um, in cooperation with with the military as well so these are some of the kind of images that you find uh, in, in relation to um, favela um, you've probably seen these kinds of images before of, of the police after the police operations there's a whole kind of uh, aesthetic if you like of displaying the the, the winds of the occupation and, and so on. You see the guy setting up very meticulously. <laughs> I quite like that picture. Um, and this is a, another very popular um, magazine in, in Brazil. Um, you can see the people there, the, the special operations forces preparing to uh, enter a, a favela. And I'll read the caption, says says uh, the hard routine of the, the police officer from the Special Forces Elite Squad, responsible for combating traffic in the favelas in Rio, uh, they prepare to give security to the athletes during the Pan American Games, the PAN, which was in Rio um, a few years ago. So this is quite an interesting one, this one found on, on the internet, but it gives you a kind of a flavour of. The kind of coverage. Um, Occasionally, you do find other representations as well in terms of uh, citizens mobilizing for peace and so forth. But it's interesting if you do an internet search on some of these newspapers, um, see if I can find it. Yeah, if you can do this, uh, you do uh, a term search for in, in these newspaper sites and then you can specify photographs or even you know because we're interested in photographs here but it's very interesting how uh so many of them do revolve around these representations of police occupation and violence and so forth the one that i wanted to show is not but um i think you, you kind of get the picture of that i'm trying to convey with this <coughs> So, the next thing that um, um, we looked at, or I'm interested in, in, in developing there, is this idea that um, it's not just about the passive uh, representation or the passive consumption of these images, but that increasingly in places like Brazil, and I'm sure there's lots of other good examples from different parts of the world, um, we see something emerging that can be called a kind of a visual praxis. Uh, practice from this idea of, um, I guess it's uh, in Brazil the, the, the key exponents experiment, of that was, was the kind of uh, philosopher-educator Paulo Freire who, who talked about how um, you, you begin to understand the, the kind of political and social nature that surrounds you, your, of your surrounding, um, in particular context of oppression, to then be able to take action uh, against the, the, that environment. And what you see in Brazil is that increasing democratization of the media as an important theme to have emerged over the last few decades, especially since the end of the dictatorship in, in the 80s. <coughs> um, and so democratizing the media has emerged as an important theme alongside uh, democratizing other aspects of society in terms of access to health, education, and political participation. <clears throat> so obviously this emerges from a growing recognition that the media is also a key force shaping society and public opinion and that it ought to be more equally uh, distributed and controlled. So in Brazil you have this interesting concept now called visual inclusion or even digital inclusion um, which seems kind of quite progressive and advancing uh, pointing to and articulating these kinds of struggles that uh, I'm talking about here. Uh, and visual inclusion means the more equitable distribution of the means of image production amongst the population. <coughs> um, so what you find then is many communities, uh, a, a long time, for a long time we've had things like, like you have in Britain as well, you have uh, community radio stations and so on. But increasingly what you have is centres of, of media production uh, that involve uh, photography uh, film uh, and blogging and so forth increasingly too um, and one organization that we we worked with uh, and I came across in this agreement of looking at young people 's participation in the public sphere was one um, that uh, involved um, It was a kind of a popular communication school that involved teaching uh, young people from a whole range of neighborhoods in Rio especially favelas um, a whole series of Skills in the production of media but also in the reading and decoding of, of media um, especially around around these communities um, and a lot of the, the the ideas behind these schools and, and the way they're, they're written about sometimes um, by academics but sometimes spoken about by people who uh, help to found and organize these ideas that they often uh, speak about the media and the uh, uh, what's happening in this community in in kind of Gramscian terms of hegemony and counter-hegemony. So so according to Gramsci, different social groups or classes seek to impose their own vision of the world. Uh, And whereas dominant social groups, or he could call especially the the organic uh, intellectuals who act on their behalf, tended to monopolize the media and impose a particular representation of the favela. Um, So this movement, if you like, this counter-hegemonic movement, is seeking to promote different kinds of representation of these communities. And uh, another author which I thought was interesting in in relation to this is Pierre Bourdieu, who wrote about the symbolic struggles over over the perception of the social world uh, in his paper on social space and symbolic power. Um, uh, Though Bourdieu discusses the struggle over the capacity to represent the world in terms of Uh, words and schemes of classification rather than images and visual representation. I think his insights are are interesting here. Uh, This is what he writes. He says the category of perception the schemata of classification that is essentially the words the names which construct social reality as much as they express it are the stake par excellence of political struggle which is a struggle to impose the legitimate principle of vision and of vision. So the struggle to impose the legitimate principle of vision and division. Uh, and, and what we've seen here then with this idea of the imaginary of marginality is a set of images surrounding the fa- favelas which are essentially images of division. They, they stress and they emphasize the division between the space of the favela from the rest of the city. Uh, they emphasize lack and they emphasize violence. <coughs> um, bourdieu continues by arguing that The power to impose and inculcate a vision of division, that is, the power to make visible and explicit social divisions that are implicit, is political power par excellence. It is the power to make groups, to manipulate the objective structure of society." So what's interesting in in relation to to photography and the images that I've shown you is that it's not that this stuff doesn't happen. Obviously, these operations happen. Obviously, violence happens. so it's, it's not like these are manipulated photographs. But I think that the broader question that this has brought to mind uh, for me and in conversation with people who um, try to represent, these are representations coming from some of these community groups, um, which are kind of quite mundane day-to-day lives of, of these communities, um, is, if you like, that there are elements of choice behind there's elements of intention Um, behind that and then the the inquiry if you like of trying to trace uh, what are these dimensions of of power of stereotype of particular habitual ways of representing is then to see well how are these decisions made why is it that just the violence is emphasised as opposed to the kind of uh, the the day to dayness of of some of these places Um, so I I I could have given you more examples of, um, from, and I'm happy to talk more about these communities, but I just think I'll end up then by just uh, raising again this, ending up with this diagram again, um, of that maybe there's a fruitful way of uh, engaging with um, this this domain of the organisation, the production and the dissemination of images that does embody or incorporate some idea of a visual political economy uh, which within implicit has a kind of uh, a series of ways of understanding and taking images and so forth but a third one which I didn't uh, include in this diagram but is is the key of um, how images come to impact subjects and the way um, that they are imagined by uh, different groups, too. So, just as a way of concluding, then, um, that the emancipatory struggle over the visual is always one, only one of dimension of a broader struggle between social groups, variously arranged and classified according to particular schemes uh, that might pertain to class or race or gender. Um, the visual can be used as a tool through which to recognize what would you call uh, visions of division. It can also be organised to encourage different political economies of production, distribution and interpretation. (laughs) Um, Having said that, it is only as part of a deeper process of social transformation that the citizenship or inclusion that have been underlying hopes of such uh, articulations and experiences can be fulfilled. Um, So I'll be really happy to see... what you'll make of this idea of visual political economies and seeing if this idea of imaginaries has any, uh, any mileage in it.